What lies at the heart of the Buddha's teachings is freedom. It's freedom from greed and attachment. It's freedom from fear and hatred. It's freedom from the delusion and ignorance of mind that keeps us asleep. It's really freedom from all those habits and conditioning and patterns of the mind that cause suffering to others and cause suffering to ourselves. And all the practices we do, practices of mindfulness, of concentration, of generosity, of loving kindness, all of the practices serve this end of liberation. The unique aspect of the Buddha's teachings is that they both begin and end with wisdom. So wisdom here is not a matter of dogma. It's not a matter of belief. Really, our whole spiritual path unfolds through our own investigation of what is true. So the question then is, how do we train in wisdom? How do we train in this investigation? And I was thinking about this question, how do we train in wisdom? I realized this is not a question that's very often asked in our Western culture. I mean, all the years in school, nobody ever asked that question. You know, how should we train in wisdom, even, even what is wisdom? And yet it's at the very heart of what we're doing here. That's what the practice is about. It's this investigation for ourselves of what is true. So we train in wisdom on various levels, in various ways. First, we hear the teachings. And in this case, particularly the teachings of the Buddha. But the second and essential step is to actually put the teachings into practice. It's not enough to hear them and maybe to have some intellectual understanding of them, which can be the basis for our practice. But then we actually have to test the teachings. We have to put them into practice and see for ourselves, do these teachings, do these practices lead to greater peace, lead to greater happiness, or not. So we're really testing this for ourselves. And you could, think of, <clears throat> you could think of this center and this whole retreat as a laboratory. It's a laboratory of investigation. It's a laboratory of wisdom. So during this retreat, we're going to emphasize one particular aspect of these wisdom teachings of the Buddha. And this is the aspect which he called the three characteristics, the three general characteristics or universal characteristics of all experience, which is the insights into impermanence, the insights into dukkha, which is the Pali word for suffering, for the unsatisfying, unfulfilling nature of changing phenomena. And it's insight into the realization of selflessness, 
So these are the three characteristics the Buddha said which can describe every aspect of our experience. Everything is impermanent, ultimately unsatisfying because it's impermanent, and empty of self. And through the course of the retreat, there'll be talks on each of these topics. Tonight, I want to emphasize the particular insights and understandings of impermanence. So someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, who was a great Japanese Zen master, came from Japan, started the San Francisco Zen Center, wrote a book which back in the 60s and 70s was a Dharma bestseller, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, really became a Dharma classic. So someone once asked him, Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years but I just don't understand. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Suzuki replied, everything changes. The implications of this statement are enormous. Now it's easy to think, oh yeah, I know that. I know everything changes. But if we really knew it, we knew it deeply and thoroughly, we wouldn't be attached to anything because we would realize that everything is changes. But most of us don't quite live in that place of complete freedom yet. Although this is not a hidden or an esoteric teaching, this truth of change, we need to go from an intellectual understanding of it, which we all have, to a deeply personal, a deeply intimate realization, a direct experience of how things are changing moment to moment. And what's amazing, and this is one of the fruits of the practice, the more deeply we can see it directly, immediately, not as a thought, not as a concept, but we're actually perceiving the truth of change as it's happening, as we're able to do this with greater and greater clarity, our hearts and minds relax. There's a great liberating power from seeing this truth of change. In seeing the impermanence, we let go of struggle. We let go of so many different kinds of suffering. We all can see this very clearly with our changing bodies. We're attached to our bodies staying a certain way. When they change, as they inevitably do, either through accidents, either through disease, or just through the very ordinary process of aging, if we're attached to them staying a certain way, we suffer. If we're attached to hair, <laughs> and the body changes, it suffers. But it's very different, it's a very different perspective, and often a difficult one, 
to see that these changes are not mistakes. It's not that something's gone wrong or that we've done something wrong. It's simply the nature of things. Everything changes, just like Suzuki Roshi said. Dharma, the word dharma, means the nature of things. It means the way things are, it means the truth. Everything changes. This is what happens to everyone. Some years ago, I was teaching a retreat. This is quite a few years ago now, maybe 12 or 13. And it might have been a people of color retreat out at Vallecitos in New Mexico, which is a mountain refuge where they hold retreats uh, for social activists, environmental activists. We were doing people of color retreats out there. And on one of these retreats, at the end, on the last day, in this beautiful wilderness surrounding, and the river runs through the property, we were walking, taking a hike on the last day up the river. Then in coming back, it had rained and the rocks were slippery. And walking back, I slipped and hyperextended my knee. But in the moment, it felt okay, and I kind of walked back. And that night, I was giving a talk, and in those days, I was still sitting cross-legged. And the thought came, ah, you should sit in a chair. But I didn't. I sat cross-legged. At the end of the talk, I couldn't get up. And somebody had to carry me back to where I was staying. I mean, and my mind, that whole night, went on this incredible trip of... First, self-blame, how could I be so careless, slipping on the rock, and then worry. I had a whole summer schedule of teaching, what am I going to do? So my mind was racing, you know, with all of these thoughts and feelings. And then it began to quiet down, and I came to sort of a pithy realization, which summed up the whole situation and sums up this truth of change. Anything can happen anytime. Just anything can happen anytime because nothing is stable. Nothing is ultimately secure. But surprisingly, this thought, anything can happen anytime, didn't create a sense of fear or paranoia. Oh my God, anything can happen anytime. Quite the opposite. As soon as I realized that and let that in, really understood, yes, this is how things are, my whole heart and mind relaxed. Yes, this is the nature of things. Things change. And things will continually change. And so there was a tremendous relief and release and ease and lack of defensiveness that came from this understanding. Because when we see the impermanent changing nature, whether of our bodies, our situations, of everything, when we are really seeing it, again, not conceptually, not intellectually, but we're having the direct perception of changes, what happens is this insight, this seeing, deconditions our tendency, it deconditions our habit patterns of grasping, of holding on. It doesn't make sense to hold on to that which is changing.
In the early days of my practice in India, and this goes back to the 60s, I was having a lot of the same difficulties in practice that everybody else has in the beginning. My mind couldn't concentrate and my body was hurting. And there I was in rather difficult conditions in India, not at all like this. And in these times of difficulties, you know, and I was there all alone, and I would just start to feel really discouraged, really depressed. You know, what am I doing here? And there was this tendency of mine to just spin out in this whole story. You know, of, it was a kind of self-pity, I think, just about the difficulties of practice. But I saw at a certain point, I saw what was happening, I saw what suffering that was. And I began to investigate ways, okay, how can I get out of this kind of depressive, discouraged state? And with some investigation and just looking at my mind, I began to ask myself, will I even know, will I even remember what I'm feeling now in six months' time? No, I'm not going to even remember in four months. You know, in, in two weeks, next week. And it just reinforced that insight. Yes, it may feel discouraged now, it may feel a little depressed. It's a changing state. It's not going to last. It's not going to be here in six months. It's not going to be here in two months. And just that remembrance, the reminding of myself, everything changes. When we really take it in, you know, we... we, we kind of live the experience, live the understanding, it releases us from these attachments, which are often the cause of suffering. And we should also ask the same question about the pleasant experiences we have that we may be attached to. Well, you know, we have a great sitting and the mind is concentrated and calm and peaceful and the body feels light. This, this, this is a little aside, a story that just came to mind. This was when I had been, been practicing for quite some time in India, and I had gotten to a place of one of these pleasant, pleasant states. The whole body felt like a, a body of light. Every time I sat down, I thought, this is great. You know, <laughs> it was. I mean, loved it. But then I ran out of money and I had to go home back to the States to work to make a little more money to go back. And then I couldn't wait to get back to my body of light. <laughs> so I worked and I spent a few months at home, got back to India, sat down. My body of light had become a body of twisted steel. <laughs> it was like, it felt like the whole body was contorted and painful. And I spent two years of my practice trying to get back that experience which I had. Two years. I'm telling you this so you don't spend two years <laughs> trying to hold on to pleasant experiences. <laughs> they were the worst two years of my practice. I mean, it was just, it was so much suffering because it's not what was happening. And it took me two years to finally let go. Okay, let me be with the body of twisted steel. 
Let me just feel it and be with it. And once I could really accept it, things started to move. It didn't go back to how it was, but things started unfolding in their own way. So whether it's difficult experiences that we want to remember are impermanent, or pleasant experiences, we also want to remember that they're impermanent. What's so amazing about the seductive power of the world is that when we look back on our experience, we really all know, we, we intuit, we have a sense of its dreamlike nature. You know, when you think back of the last weeks or months or years or things that happened a long time ago, it's almost like a dream. And yet, when we look ahead, we're so often entranced by the next possibility. You know, and for most of us, this is our lives. We're looking forward, leaning forward, anticipating the next hit of experience. This is how we're living. It's like, well, what's the next thing going to be? You know, the next event in our lives the next day of work, the next relationship, the next project, the next meal. And even on retreat, we do it here. Have you noticed sitting and even sitting in anticipation of the next breath? It's like our whole conditioning is to lean forward in anticipation of what's coming next. Even though some deep part of us realizes that whatever it is is soon going to be passed and have that same dreamlike nature of, as everything else. Even on this first day of retreat, I wonder how many of you have had even a few thoughts about the first thing you're going to do when you leave the retreat. You know, maybe reconnect with your partners or your friends or have a good meal or sleep in your own bed or whatever, whatever your particular fantasy is. Yet all those moments are soon going to be passed as well. It's all just this flow of changing phenomena. And as we get older, it all seems to fly by a lot more quickly. Somebody once said that when they turned 55, breakfast came every 15 minutes. <laughs> and it's really like that. <laughs> and at 65, it's every 10 minutes. <laughs> so there's a great paradox in this spiritual adventure. And that is that as objects of wanting, or as objects of desire, all these changing experiences, whatever they are, right, in our minds, in our bodies, in the world around us, as objects of wanting or desire, all these changing experiences leave us ultimately unfulfilled, unsatisfied. Why? Because they don't last. It's so simple. But these very same experiences as objects of mindfulness and awareness, 
become the vehicle for our wisdom and become the vehicle of our awakening. Because we can learn from them, we can learn deeply the truth of change. Right from the ordinary experiences of our lives. So our practice is not a question of pulling away from experience. Rather, it's learning to not hold on. And that's a big difference. It's the difference between two words that are often confused, certainly in Buddhist circles, and maybe outside as well. It's the difference between detachment, which implies a pulling back, you know, a detached, pull back, and even a kind of indifference. That's very different than non-attachment. Detachment is a pulling back. Non-attachment is being totally there, but not holding on. And that's where the freedom is. So liberating insight into impermanence comes in many ways and on many different levels. From science, you know, we know of the birth and death of stars, of whole galaxies, you know, are formed and then they live their lives and die. And on the smallest scale, you know, of subatomic particles, just the changing nature of the energy movements of these particles. I'd like to read something to you. Inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. I mean, could you imagine that in the hand of your watch? <laughs> a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron, about one attosecond, to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond, a millionth of a trillionth of a second, would be regarded as a long nap. <laughs> Down here inside the proton, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. I think at some point the physicists realized they had entered a Marx Brothers routine, <laughs> where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, and it does make one wonder how in the world they ever measured it, but evidently they can. When they started measuring things in terms of trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoktosecond. <laughs> Atto, zepto, yokto. <laughs> By the Time it takes for a quark to circle around inside a proton is somewhere between a zeptosecond and a yoktosecond. All you can do is smile and let go. I mean, so that's a level of reality that's happening. You know, and it's a fundamental level of reality. The change is 
beyond imagination, the rapidity of change. Well, for most of us, our perceptions are not quite that refined. We're not seeing changes in terms of yoktoseconds. Still, as our concentration and mindfulness get stronger, and they do over time, what I call the NPMs go way up. And NPMs are noticings per minute. And in the beginning, our NPMs, I don't know, 10, 15, 20. You know, we notice that many things per minute. But what's so amazing in the practice, as we train ourselves in attentiveness, in concentration, the NPMs go way up and we can see hundreds of things in a minute, maybe more, maybe thousands of things. And we see that what seems so fixed and solid, you know, this reality that we take ourselves to be, is really in a state of constant flux and transformation. And we can see this even in the very ordinary experiences of our meditation and our lives, just as a few examples. You know, in the first days of practice, we're just trying to connect with the breath, and we might, you know, we're doing well if we can be aware of the in-breath, be aware of the out-breath, link a few breaths together before the mind goes off. But slowly, as we keep doing it, it's, it's just like a training. It's practicing the scales and music, you know, so we get some facility with it. We begin to pay more attention even to what's happening in one breath, in one in-breath. An in-breath is not one thing. When we're paying careful attention, it's a flow of microscopic sensations in one in-breath that we can actually feel. We feel these microscopic sensations on an out-breath or the movements in a step. You know, we might think, oh, the step, taking a step, it's one thing, or when we're doing a slow walking meditation, maybe we see the step in three parts. But actually, just in the movement of lifting or moving forward, just in this movement now, as I'm moving my arm, and I'm really feeling it carefully, there are so many things going on, so many subtle sensations that can be felt. We drop below the level of concept of foot or leg or body or arm or even of breath, and we drop right into this flow of energy sensations. And it's on that level that we see the rapidity of change very clearly and very intimately. Just as another example, you know, we can approach this from so many sides, whether it's from the side of science, from the side of our practice right here, the ordinary experience of going to the movies. You know, think of the last time you went to a really good movie, absorbed in the story, really caught up and experienced all different kinds of emotions. But is anyone there actually getting chased or falling in love or dying? No. Really, all that's happening are like pixels of light on the screen, changing very rapidly. 
But we're not seeing that. We're not perceiving that. We're perceiving the pictures, and the pictures seem to be moving, moving pictures, you know, because we're not seeing the separate frames of film or however it is they do it these days. You know, we're not seeing just pixels of light changing, and so we're caught and absorbed in the story. Everything we thought was happening is not really happening at all. Somebody asked a Tibetan teacher in this regard, you know, kind of using this analogy of the movie and people on the screen, is talking about, this person asked this Tibetan teacher, well, is the self real? And this Tibetan teacher said, yes, the self is real, but not really real. <laughs> and that's the insight we want to come to in our practice. It is real, We do want to engage with the movie and dramas and stories of our lives in a meaningful way. It is real, but not really real. And meditation drops us to a level where we can come to this different understanding. And it's not that all of a sudden, you know, there's a big poof and we disappear. We're living our ordinary lives, engaged in our relationships. But if we can also see things on a deeper level, seeing the more elemental changing nature of things, then we don't fall so easily into reactivity and suffering. We're not so caught in the melodrama of our lives. Because even as we're engaged, we understand a deeper reality. So wisdom comes from all these ways of seeing impermanence. It also comes from a careful attention to impermanence in ways we already know. We know it clearly, but we often overlook. And so these become real daily life meditations. When we're paying attention, we see that everything is changing all around us. We see the changes of nature. You know, living here in the Northeast, the changes of seasons, very dramatic. Six months from now, icy winds outside. We see it in the daily changing weather patterns. You know, we see it in the huge changes going on in the environment. You know, the major problems of climate change. We even can see change in the, in the whole rise and fall of whole cultures and civilizations. I like to read history because it's such a reminder of the impermanence of things. Some years ago I read this, this great book on Genghis Khan. You know, and I kind of knew who he was, but I didn't know much really about him. This was a great book. It's just the story and history of his life. I mean, at one time, he ruled most of Asia, a good part of the entire continent, and had this tremendous 
influence on everything that went on. And yet now when we think of Genghis Khan, yeah, I don't know, some guy who lived in Mongolia. You know, we don't have much connection to the import of his life, you know, and those times. Because that whole culture and civilization came into being, it flourished, it passed away, it died, just like everything else. And just like our civilization will. This is the nature. Things arise and they pass away. Even more immediately, you may have a chance as you walk through the woods here, if you walk you know, on the paths, on the trails, you'll see all these stone walls and old foundations you know, of abandoned houses. Yeah, people, there were people who were farming these, you know, who had cleared this land, who had built these walls. And sometimes I just kind of imagine, you know, these people who were living here and doing that enormous amount of work. You know, can you imagine building? One point I just read, there were over 250,000 miles of stone walls in just this small New England area. Can you imagine the amount of work that went into that? People, so just imagine people's lives and their lives were as vivid and compelling to them as ours is to us. And yet what's left now? You know, the stone walls, old foundations. You know, we can look closer at the changing experiences of our own relationships, our work the changes in our bodies and minds. When we pay attention, which is what we're training to do here, we see that everything on every level is disappearing and new things are arising in every moment. So just as a little experiment, if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, I'll make a little mental note. When you leave the hall after the talk, you know, if you leave moderately mindfully, just pay attention to the flow of changing experiences in leaving the hall. You know, the eyes will be seeing different things. You'll be hearing different sounds. The sensations of the movement, the sensations in the body of the movement will be constantly changing. Thoughts may come and go. And watch what happens <clears throat> to each one of these experiences, moment after moment. You know, a sound, a sight, a sensation, a thought, another sound, a sensation, moment after moment, just in the ordinary activity of walking out of the hall. You can tune in to this flow of change very immediately and very directly. But the truth of this is so ordinary that we've stopped paying attention to it. I mean, this is not <clears throat> a mysterious thing. This is just our ordinary experience unfolding, but we're not paying attention to its impermanent nature. And so we miss the every day, every moment opportunity to deepen our insight or understanding into change. Why is this so important? You might ask, why bother with all this? 
the clearer our insight is into the changing nature of experience on all levels, whether it's the macro level, the subatomic level, or our more ordinary reality, the clearer our insight is into the changing nature, the less we cling, the less we hold on. And the less we hold on, the less we suffer. That's what it's all about. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, he said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So don't, <clears throat> don't underestimate the importance and the power of seeing the truth of change on all these levels. As I say, it can be so ordinary that we just overlook it. Lady Sayadaw, and Sayadaw was a Burmese title uh, of respect for teachers. Lady Sayadaw was <clears throat> one of the great monks, lived at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. He was a great meditation master and also a great scholar, and he wrote many, many <coughs> manuals and uh, works on Buddhism. He said, not seeing arising and passing away, not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance, while seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. Now, this is an important doorway. <coughs> seeing all phenomena as impermanent. Seeing all phenomena as impermanent, not thinking that all phenomena is impermanent. We need to see it. And that's what we're doing in the meditation. It's practicing seeing the changing nature, that whatever's arising is also passing. It's the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So it's not insignificant. Now, this is really a doorway to freedom, to liberation. Perhaps the most obvious and most ignored reflection regarding impermanence is that the end of birth is death. When we reflect on this, we realize that our lives are only getting shorter and shorter. It's just going in that direction. And that phrase really resonated. Our lives are just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. But often our awareness of death seems limited to other people. It's always others who are dying. You know, and we don't often consider our own deaths. In the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, one of the sages you know, was speaking and he says that one of the most remarkable things in the world is that we see people dying all around us, but we don't think it will happen to us. And again, there's a disconnect. Of course we know intellectually that it will happen to us. 
but have we really let it in? Do we really reflect on the truth of our own deaths? What is so surprising, given that impermanence shows itself in so many ways, on so many levels all around us, is that we still find it surprising. Now, why should we find <laughs> impermanence surprising? But in some way, we, many of us, you know, are living and we're counting on things staying a certain way. And this is kind of how we go through our lives. Just counting on things, staying a certain way, remaining reasonably stable. Or if they change, that they'll change in a way that we like. You know, and that's, that's kind of how we hope. Now, sometimes people may think that all these reflections on impermanence and change and death you know, are morbid or something to avoid. But they are really reflections on what is true. And that's one meaning of the word dharma. We want to wake up to what is true. And not, as I said in the beginning, not to simply believe it, but check it out. See for yourself whether this is true. And then to see as we let this great truth of change in, the truth of death, that the end of birth is death, as we let it in and reflect on it, does it inspire us? Does it frighten us? Given the truth of death, what does it say about how we live, about the choices we make? One experiment which I've done often and has been a really useful exercise. I imagine myself as, myself as vividly as possible on my deathbed. And I've, I've given myself the bed. Because we don't really know how we're going to die, but <laughs> since since I'm just making up this experiment, I thought, okay, <laughs> let's let's do it in bed. <laughs> but then I really try to think, okay, I'm on my deathbed, you know, I'm really dying, and then asking the question, what would I want to have done in my life? You know, what choices would I have wanted to make? And it's very powerful to do that from the perspective of one's dying moments. You know, in, in looking back, what would I have wanted to have done in my life? So to, to really do that and to imagine it and to reflect on it and to realize that the time to ask these questions is now. Because now we can make the choices. If we wait till we're actually dying, it's too late. And so do we want to have lived our lives simply living out whatever particular conditioned patterns and habits you know, we've grown up with? Or do we want to take a very active role in choosing our lives, in creating our lives? There are many examples of 
wisdom in the face of death. And they're, they're inspiring. Last year I was listening to uh, audio CDs of a wonderful book on the life of Crazy Horse. You know, the great Lakota warrior and mystic. It was a book by Joseph Marshall. And you're probably familiar with the famous words ascribed to Crazy Horse. He said, today is a good day to die for all the things of my life are present. That's a powerful statement. Today is a good day to die for all the things of my life are present. There's no fear there. You know, there's a tremendous presence. And it's said that this really epitomized the fundamental understanding of the Lakotas and also of many other indigenous people who are describing life just as a circle, you know, like the stars or the sun and the moon are circles. We're born, we live, we die. And in this understanding of birth and death, that all the things of my life are present, I can feel that sense of wholeness, that sense of completeness, that sense of acceptance. There's another example of this deep, deep understanding. And this is in the life and death of Henry David Thoreau, the great New England naturalist. He died very young. He died at age 44 of tuberculosis, which is not a pleasant, it's not a pleasant way. Uh, But the people who were around him at the time of his death wrote about him, and it's extraordinary. His level of understanding is really quite extraordinary. It said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. It's in the midst of dying from TV, TB. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. Now, is that an amazing statement? He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. What he's saying here is that awareness can hold anything. The mind conforms, awareness conforms to whatever is there. Perfect health, perfect disease, and to live in that realization is really quite amazing. He said, the thought of death could not begin to trouble him. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, when I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. So, of course, I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Deep realization of this truth of change, of impermanence. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. So these understandings are possible. 
can we come to that understanding that we have never quarreled? Come to that sense of completion. The liberating power of seeing this truth of impermanence was expressed in one very startling statement of the Buddha's. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary rise and fall of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. That's quite an extraordinary statement in terms of pointing out what is of ultimate value. Better to live a single day seeing deeply the truth of change than to live a hundred years without it because it's that truth which can liberate the heart. There are many times places in the Buddha's discourses where people are enlightened by hearing just a single phrase. So I'm going to say one of them. This is your chance, and this is just <laughs> this is just the first night of the retreat. If you get it, you can go home. <laughs> really, people get enlightened hearing this. <laughs> okay, listen carefully. <laughs> Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. That whatever is really important. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Because the whatever is everything. Whatever arises will also pass away. Through our direct, intimate, repeated seeing this, reflecting on it, that whatever arises will also pass away, that all, all experience is simply part of a passing show. It's like the current of a river or the flow of water on a waterfall. It's not that it stops. It's not that the water gets frozen you know, halfway down. It's a continual flow, a continual flow of change. That is our lives. That's exactly what's happening. But unless we look, unless we really pay attention, we don't see it and we solidify this sense of who we are. Seeing this flow of change in our lives, and it's what the meditation practice is all about, that's what we're doing here. It's practicing seeing directly, seeing for ourselves. Yes, everything that arises is also passing. Thoughts and sensations and feelings and sounds and sights, everything. Whatever is arising is also passing away. So that as we train ourselves to see it more and more clearly and more and more continuously, it reorients our minds. It reorients our minds towards care and loving kindness rather than clinging and attachment. It reorients our minds towards letting go rather than holding on. 
really deepening our insight into this flow of continual change, it reorients us towards the possibility of freedom. I want to read one short thing by a Japanese nun. She was the abbess of a nunnery, 18th century, who had this great awakening experience. And this is how she described it. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this itself arose, abided, and fell away. So both the knowing and what is known, it's all part of this flow. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. There was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Yeah, that's such a beautiful image. Just letting go, opening the clenched fist in the mind, letting go, and falling into the midst of everything. So just by way of closing, it's helpful to understand that all of this, our whole practice, and our whole life can be held in the larger context of what in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta literally means awakened heart. And more specifically, it means the motivation and the aspiration that our practice and our lives is not for ourselves alone. That we can dedicate our lives, we can dedicate our practice to the welfare, the benefit, the awakening of all beings. Now our practice will inevitably help others as we are more generous and more loving and wiser, it will inevitably affect all the people around us. But we can actually put this aspiration right up front and we can make it the very motivation for our practice. And that motivation tremendously energizes our endeavors. So, for example, at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a day, if it inspires you, you might say something to the effect, may my practice today, may my life today be for the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the awakening of all. And so we put ourselves on this trajectory you know, of liberation, not only for ourselves, but to benefit all beings. Thank you. Let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.